then. Children of the night, what music they make. They're coming to get you, Barbara. They're here. Ah. Welcome to my nightmare. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Oh, Kill you all. You don't know what death is. We belong dead. Here's Johnny. <laughs> I shot him six times. Only a butt. Free for your life. <laughs> <laughs> to a new world of parts and monsters. <laughs> Hi friends, welcome to Pods and Monsters. My name is Robert, and with me, as always, is Inthea. Hello, we're Pods and Monsters, a monster movie podcast where we talk about and review movies from yesterday and today and all the times, but pretty much we're going chronologically in the universal movie monster timeline as well as every alternating movie being whatever we want yeah that's pretty much how it goes uh the main universal movies we do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. today we are in a well i can't say current movie because it is 45 years old almost but uh no it's almost 40 years old i was like 45 (laughs) how old am i no I, i dated it a little bit We're going back to the year 1981, and today's movie is entitled An American Werewolf in London. This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on a night of the full moon. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. So, an American werewolf in London. This is our second werewolf movie so far? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, we have discussed Werewolf of London. Mm-hmm. The Wolfman is my favorite oh, of we the werewolf there movies. Yet. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. So, an American werewolf in London. How familiar were you with this picture? Um, I mean, somewhat familiar. I'd seen it maybe once. Well, definitely once before. Yeah. Um, And I remember really liking it. Mm-hmm. But... When I started to think about it, a few things were not very familiar to me. So I knew that it was a movie about two boys backpacking through Europe. And one of them gets bitten by a werewolf and the other one gets murdered by a a werewolf. And uh, that's pretty much about it. Um, And I also said that there's a really awesome, insane transformation scene. Mm -hmm. um, And that my favorite Rick Baker monster maker is uh, responsible for it. That's right, Rick Baker, Monster Maker. I didn't really grow up watching this movie. I had always known about it from pictures in monster magazines and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember actually watching the movie until I was probably uh, as a teenager. I don't think as a kid. I watched it when I was in my 20s. Okay. As an adult, for sure. Yeah, but I have seen it plenty of times since the first time I saw it, and I do really enjoy it. It's a great, great film. 
why don't you take us through it? Why don't you take us back to the moors where we are to stay on the road? For if we leave those roads, evil is afoot. Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. Beware the moon, lads. So we start with the 70s slash 80s Universal logo. Yeah. It's like the, is it the MCA logo? Yeah, it's I don't really remember so. There's no music playing over this, and it says that it's for someone named Jim O'Rourke. And then Blue Moon starts playing over shots of a peaceful, grassy valley and a countryside. And we get the title of our movie in these big old white block letters. And what is that title? An American Werewolf in London. (laughs) That's right. Uh, These shots of the countryside are beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's gorgeous. Super gorgeous. Yeah, it was shot in the Black Mountains of Mid-Wales. Okay. It's kind of a dark and dreary day. And, uh, you know, when they were filming this movie, these shots of the moors, usually a production crew has to wait for good weather to come in when shooting a movie. But John Mm -hmm. Landis wanted it to be dark and dreary, and the weather was too good for a lot of the time. So they had to wait for that bad weather to arrive. (laughs) We start with a long road and a car for off in the distance that's coming towards the camera, and the music starts to fade. It's a truck that has a bed full of sheep and two young traveling men back there. The driver points these two men to a town or a village called East Proctor. He tells them to stay off the moors. Boys, keep off the moors. Stick to the roads. The best of luck. Which I had to look up exactly what that meant. Uh-huh. Pretty much it's just like valley bushy countryside not moors moops well in that case he was talking about people yeah but i guess it's uncivilized land which then i guess you could fall down a hole yeah um hole a whole hole <laughs> isn't it ironic that they are being brought here in a truck full of sheep oh because they're werewolves well they're yeah they're gonna be the sheep to the proverbial werewolf Oh, yep, got it. (laughs) So the two men that we are following are named Jack and David. Jack is upset that they are in cold England and that it's raining. He'd prefer to be in Italy, which is where they're going to be eventually. But David was able to convince him to go to England first, then Italy. And we got really great banter and conversation. Yeah, um, very naturalistic. Mm-hmm, where we find out that Jack is supposed to meet up with a gal named Debbie in Italy. And then they have a bunch of boy talk, I guess. Whatever. Um, <laughs> as they're uh, taking this walk to East Proctor. They arrive to the town and they walk up to a pub called The Slaughtered Lamb. The Slaughtered Lamb. I love the sign. I do too. I want one. Uh, me too. And I do love that Jack is very apprehensive, sees the sign, and it's like a giant red flag for him. And he's like, what are we doing here? We need to leave. Yeah. The Slaughtered Lamb. No, really. What kind of ad is that for a pub? They walk inside and everyone immediately stops what they're doing and stares at them in this pub. They try to order soup or hot chocolate or coffee and the bar matron is super unfriendly and tells them that they have nothing, but that she can give them tea. Uh, I wonder what flavor. Probably just a 
black tea? The bar matron and pretty much everyone in the bar is pretty unfriendly. Jack notices that there's a five-pointed star on the wall with creepy candles. The pentagram. Yes, which he says very interestingly. He doesn't pentagram. He says it weird. Well, I think he says pentagram and then he calls it something else, but... Pentacle? Yeah, pentacle. But then even that he says weird. <laughs> but here we get our first mention of the Wolfman. Yes. So Jack tells David to ask about the candles and says that it's for witchcraft. And for he, from here he goes into pretty much a big old Wolfman re- reference. Yeah, he mentions that the pentagram is the sign of the Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. and all that. It's a pentangle, a five-pointed star. It's used in witchcraft. Lonchini Jr. Universal Studios maintain that's the mark of the Wolfman. David very clearly shows that he kind of thinks that Jack is overreacting and just kind of plays it off. David makes a joke about the star to the bar matron mm-hmm. and asks her if she remembers the Alamo because they were like, maybe it's like a whole Texas thing. And so this prompts one of uh, the bar patrons to have a very inappropriate joke yeah, it's a regarding... Great- the Alamo. Yeah, it's a nice uh, racist joke to start off a movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole bar is laughing and Jack then brings up again the star and they're met with silence after this Alamo joke. Yeah, I like there's a guy playing darts that he misses and he, yes. say, and he says, You made me miss. That actor, do you recognize him? I do. I know him from the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yes. Uh, two and three. He's like, remember there's that Lord Beckett, the the bad guy? Uh-huh. Uh, he was his henchman guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, he does go on about how he never misses darts and he's super upset. Uh, then a storm starts outside and the boys say that they want to leave. And we find out that I believe the barmaid, her name is said once, it's Gladys. And she says that they can't leave. However, everyone in the bar is like, just get out of here. But the dart player does end up telling them to um, keep clear of the moors. And another one, which is the joke teller, he tells them to beware of the moon. Beware the moon, lads. As they're leaving, David says that he wants them to find an inn. And so they start walking. We go back into the bar and the barmaid Gladys is upset that the men in there let the boys go. The dart player says that it's pretty much murder. And the joke teller says that if it's murder, then it's murder. And that they don't need to tell everyone their business. And that it's in God's hands now. So everyone is so dramatic in this bar. I love it so much. Yeah, it's it, it's a really great opening to a monster movie. I mean, it, it really feels like a modern universal horror movie. Mm-hmm. Then we get a glorious shot of the moon and the boys talking about what happened in the bar and trying to figure out what it all meant. Then it starts to rain again. And I noted that they aren't on the road anymore. They're clearly walking on like some grassy land land lawn. (laughs) We cut back to the bar and the barmaid says that she hopes that they're safe in the rain. Well, she was saying perhaps the rain will protect them. Yes. Meaning whatever's out there maybe won't come out and get them if it's raining. Yeah. Yes. They debate if they should have warned the boys or if they should still go out maybe. And then we get our first howling. Listen. Yeah. A terrific howl. Yes. And the bar gets really tense. Uh, The barmaid urges them to go out and get the boys and... 
uh, the men say that they won't hear of it, then no, they're not going to do it. The boys then also hear the howling and they remember the warnings and they realize at that point, I like how they look down and around and they realize that they've strayed off of the road, that they're in the moors and that the moon Mm -hmm. is out. So it's like, yeah. they're just recounting every, it's like a beat. They're like, <laughs> and I love how they say it. They're like, we're not on the road. The moon is out. <laughs> yeah. I think they're, yeah, they're repeating it. They say, stay off the road. So they look down and go, oops. <laughs> <laughs> it's a full moon. Beware the moon and stick to the road. Oops. Then they hear the howling again and they realize that they are super lost the growling and howling um, starts to kind of circle them, which I like how this is done. Yeah, it's very scary and effective, and you know, it's great when you see it in the theater. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine the sound just yeah. going around. It's moving. It's circling us. It freaks them out, and they try to kind of like power walk their way back to where they think that the road might be. But they're trying to be very casual about it. Like they're not alarmed and they're trying to talk to whatever is following them. But their banter is very realistic too. Just saying like, what is that? Like, like you could really put yourself in their shoes and you would have a similar reaction of like trying not to make too big of a deal about it, to have a brave face, but you're really scared out of your mind. Oh yeah. These two actors have really, really great chemistry. Yeah. David slips and Jack tries to help him up. As he's helping him up, uh, Jack gets attacked and David ends up running away, but then runs back. And it's intercut with like David kind of realizing that he's leaving his friend behind and his friend being horrifically torn apart. Yeah, he's being mauled, an unbelievably violent, bloody scene. Super. And it's funny, when they filmed this scene, Rick Baker, who did the makeup, he told Griffin Dunn to be careful with the wolf head because it was the hero head that he was uh, having to battle against. Mm -hmm. So when they shot it, you know, he is violently being attacked, uh, or it's more he's like holding a dummy head and pretending to be attacked, you know. And he actually pulled the foam rubber off of it, and Rick Baker was upset by that. So he thought for the next take, maybe he'll put in sharp teeth so he can't get to it, but he didn't do that. Instead, he used a stunt head and really beat him up with it <laughs> as he was being killed. <laughs> this scene is is really great, not even just for the visuals, but for Griffin Dunn's acting of being killed. Mm-hmm. As David runs back, he gets attacked also, but the bar patrons show up and shoot whatever's attacking him which at this point looks like a big old dog david is then lying bloody on the ground and looks over and there's a naked dying man next to him yeah then we got a pov of the pub men looking down at david and it fades to black yeah so when when you saw the naked dying man you were confused for a second i was um, obviously, this is the werewolf back in human form. Mm-hmm. When I was doing some research on this movie, apparently a lot of people were confused by that. I love it, though, because then you get that payoff later on in the movie. Yeah, but it also kind of gives a theory, which you can see this, that perhaps there are no werewolves in this movie and it's all in their mind, meaning that they just go crazy and kill and attack people, but... 
they don't really turn into wolves. I think they really do, but that's just a theory that why why do people have to why can't we just enjoy a movie (laughs) from start to end and not say well maybe this is the you know go into some weird like not weird but just unnecessary um i don't know people like it's dumb people like to come up with backstories for things uh, i don't know why but But i mean it's like mm. and then also it just when people are like well why didn't she go outside and then instead of up the stairs because <laughs> there's or, no movie then. exactly <laughs> it's a movie yeah Ugh, sorry uh we wake up with david in the hospital and he calls out for jack here we meet nurse price who is his attending nurse at the moment nurse alex price and then uh we also meet another nurse who just uh, was she big old perf but whatever <laughs> yeah she gave a look at david's uh package to see if he was circumcised or not <laughs> but then i love how the doctor comes in and they're like well actually it's a very common practice right now it's just not jewish people and i'm like why are we having this conversation <laughs> because but john landis wrote this <laughs> <laughs> um the doctor arrives and tells david that jack has died david i'd like you to prepare yourself your friend is dead. The police say that they were attacked by an escaped lunatic. This doctor is Dr. Hirsch, and he is so British. I've never <laughs> seen a more British person in my life. Are you sure? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I might, that might be true. Um, so uh, then from here, we got to cut to a point of view of something running through the forest. And back Mm -hmm. to David. And David wakes up. Yeah, this is the first of his many dream sequences, which I love all of them and how more intense they come. What I really like about it is the music. It's just something weird and surreal about the music. By the way, the music is done by Elmer Bernstein. When he wakes up, we meet um, the doctor again and a gentleman from the U.S. Embassy named Mr. Collins. Hi. Played by Frank Oz. Yeah, he is, uh, you know, many different voices of Muppets, and uh, he plays a dual role in the movie. We'll later see him as Miss Piggy. (laughs) Oh, I was like, what? Um, And, you know, he's the voice of Yoda and all that stuff. It's an interesting uh, little scene with with the gentleman from the U.S. Embassy. Yeah, he's kind of awful. Yeah, there's just really no reason, but whatever. David is upset and confused on hearing about Jack and um, him being in the hospital. It turns out that he's been there for three weeks now. He gets sedated because he's just honestly, totally reasonably upset. As he's dozing off back to sleep, he tells them that a werewolf attacked them, that they were not attacked by a lunatic. It's an animal. What? A wolf. Did he say a wolf? Later, the doctor is visited by two gentlemen from Scotland Yard. They heard that David is awake and they want to talk with him. When they finally do talk to David, he tells them that their report is wrong. They say that they have the man that attacked the boys and two witnesses and that they're going to close the case. David says that they're wrong and the doctor tells him that he'll remember things correctly soon enough. So he thinks that all of this is just a delusion, basically. Mm-hmm. And we get another cut of David running naked in the forest and he just attacks and eats a deer. Yeah, it's so weird, this scene. <laughs> He's naked throughout a lot of this movie. First He's of very all. naked. He's got some gams <laughs> and some thighs. <laughs> when, <laughs> when he attacks that deer, there's a really nice music cue I really like there, too. It's it's like not like a scary music cue. It's just a weird cue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's yeah. very surreal. Really like that. <laughs> 
Back in the hospital, uh, Nurse Price is making her rounds in the children's ward. And one of the, uh, another like orderly, he delivers meals, comes by and she asks about David and he tells him, he doesn't know, just go check on him. So she goes to check on him and finds that he's not eating. He is actually very contently listening to music. Yeah, he's having the time of his life. He's in the best (laughs) of moods. And I assume it's because he's eating this deer, but did he actually eat a deer? I don't think so. Okay. (laughs) Then (laughs) he's not eating the hospital food and he's not hungry. She then tells him that he needs to eat because she needs to give him his meds that need to be taken with food. Yeah. And we get all this flirty banter between the two of them. Yeah. Then she sits next to him and starts cutting up his meal and feeding him and he just goes i'm sorry i'm not very hungry yeah she feeds him the food and uh i don't know i have never met a nurse that has been this uh helpful before (laughs) in more ways than one she's very helpful yeah i guess so and then next we find david now fully clothed running through the forest Uh and he sees his bedridden self being approached, attended to by Alex. And then we get a cut from Alex's point of view, kind of. And he has this crazy demon face. Yeah, it's it's not the werewolf makeup. It's this particular, you know, as you said, demon werewolfy face. It's and like that weird. It's like when Michael Jackson <laughs> in Thriller. Yeah. Which is also John Landis. Well, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I might as well tell you now, uh, Michael Jackson... When he saw American Werewolf in London, he loved it so much. He wanted to know who made this movie. That's who he wanted to uh, make Thriller. So that's how it all got to be because of this movie. But yeah, it's a very similar makeup job in that movie to this one. And this does kind of look like uh, with the makeup at the end, I guess, maybe with the eyes. That mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it's some like other makeups too. If The but. Exorcist and Thriller had a baby and it's yeah. like this weird little demon face. But, but it's a great cut. Yeah, but it really is. It's a great jump scare and uh-huh. a great makeup job. In fact, this was the most uncomfortable makeup for David Naughton to wear out of all the makeups because of the contact lenses. Were they all glass? They were t- yeah, because yeah, it was the 80s. Yeah, they didn't have good contact lenses back yeah. then. 70s? 80s. 80s, yeah. So David ends up talking to the doctor about what happened and in the end tells him that he does not want to be alone. The doctor is pushing and saying, you know, you're going to be out of here in a couple of days. Are you sure you're okay? And he just says he doesn't want to be alone. So Alex, the nurse, ends up getting sent to stay with him and keep him company. So she's just there until pretty much he falls asleep or mm-hmm. middle of the night, whenever. Yeah, she, she's reading to him, I believe. Um, well, she thinks that he's sleeping and he startles her by complimenting her. And so she ends up reading to him to help him fall asleep. Right. Now we're with a family and we come to find out that this is David's family and they are watching the Muppets. Yeah. So they're just having a nice evening at home and someone's at the door and it's when the father opens the door, it's a bunch of like werewolf Nazis that are (laughs) um, at the door and they shoot up the family, which turns out to be David's family. Yeah. And they and David's at the table and they go and they slit his throat um, and kill him. And he wakes up 
And I love this so much. So then it's like he gets startled awake. He wakes up and Alex is there and she offers to get him something to help him go back to sleep, even though it's, I believe, the morning. And when she opens the curtains, there's another werewolf Nazi (laughs) who attacks her and starts stabbing her. And then from this, David wakes up. So it was a dream within a dream. Yeah. And he says, holy. (laughs) And... Yeah, this dream sequence is one of the classic scenes of the movie. It's great masks that Rick Baker made of the different werewolves. Each one is pretty distinct, and they have this great roar. I'm not sure if that roar originated with them or not, but it is also used in the movie Crawl, Mm. when the Slayers die. In fact, you could hear it in our opening montage also. Mm But yeah, this dream sequence, it's so violent and just strange. Like the family is just like being shot across the room by these guns <laughs> and they're setting the whole place it's ablaze. So and yeah, and it's it's strange because it's almost, it's a dream showing David's fears come to reality. Not just the werewolf aspect of it, but the fact of him being Jewish and I mean I, I know it, it's the 80s but I mean, I'm sure he had heard stories from his parents about Nazis breaking in and that scared him as a kid so it's probably his fears his deepest fears uh, coming uh, to fruition and also the Muppets <laughs> it's the morning and food is brought to him it's like a pretty big buffet of food And when the orderly leaves, Jack appears, and he is very mauled up. Yeah, this makeup might be the best makeup of the whole movie. It's really, oh, the little dangly bits on his (laughs) chin when he moves his head. Yes, this is the dead Jack, and he is mauled with his throat cut out and scratches all over him and it's disgusting and so realistic and one of the first things he says to david if not the first is can i have a piece of toast can i have a piece of toast and there was going to be a shot where he eats the toast and it falls out of his throat because it's ripped open and that scene was cut because they wanted to keep an r rating He ends up telling David about his funeral, and David thinks that he's going crazy, which I really do like this conversation that they end up happening, because then we get an update on Debbie and what her situation is. (laughs) So even though Jack is dead, he's still talking about Debbie. Yeah, because he talks about his funeral and that Debbie showed up and she actually cried, but then she went to the arms of some other guy. (laughs) (laughs) Which Um, is always the thing, like, how many of us have thought about who would show up at our funeral? We all think about that, don't we? Right? Yeah, totally. Jack is there to warn him and tells him the rules. I love this. We get our werewolf rules established in this movie. Yeah. And tells him pretty much that he's doomed to walk the earth in this purgatory until the last werewolf, which he says is David, is dead. Then his soul and himself can be released. Mm-hmm. Take your life, David. Kill yourself before you kill others. So after this, Alex shows up to check on David because he was freaking out and he called, he pressed the call nurse button on the wall. Yeah. So um, they're interrupted. He's kind of in hysterics and he kisses her and tells her that he's a werewolf. I'm a werewolf as well as telling her that Jack was just there. She doesn't really believe him, but she definitely likes him at this point, and she offers her place to him 
as a place to stay after he has to leave the hospital, which is in just a few days. How lucky is David? <laughs> he gets like the most beautiful nurse. And not only does she flirt with him, feed him, give him a place to stay, but now she wants to be his girlfriend? I mean... Well, do you know that yet? I mean... Oh, yeah, we don't know that yet, but know we know that. that. I feel like you're a little jealous of I David. am jealous of David. What did he do to, to deserve her except get killed or he get just bitten? just got bitten by a werewolf. I guess go walk some more. Maybe, maybe it'll happen for you. Well, you know... That's one thing about the Wolfman movies is the ladies love Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, because he's sad and ladies want to help these poor tortured souls. Oh, well, she tells him at one point that she likes him because he's a little sad. Exactly. Here it is, actually. So um, <laughs> she offers a place for him to stay after the hospital. So they go to her apartment. They pick up some food, go to her apartment. And Alex tells him so much about herself which is so bizarre and he even is like why are you telling me this like she tells him her whole entire sexual history everything and she says that she finds him attractive and a little sad i find you very attractive and a little bit sad and then we have our first montage of this movie (laughs) and it's not my favorite Well, it wouldn't be the 80s without a montage. It is a sexy shower montage that then turns into a bed sex montage. (laughs) Apparently, it was hard to film that scene because there's not a lot of showers in London. (laughs) They had to build their their own shower, I guess. What? They use baths in London. Huh. (laughs) Well, this is back in 1980. Okay. Well, I mean, we know some people in in the UK, and um, I'm sure someone listens. Do you have showers? <laughs> well, as they say in Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, which they do reference in this movie, there's no place like London. What does that even have to do with showers? London. <laughs> Barbridge. <sighs> okay. Uh, so they have some shower sex, and there's, an au- there's awkward kissing. I just told i even stopped and looked at you and i was like it's not my favorite so after their sexy times david goes to the bathroom and we get a really great jump scare reveal which has been parodied in so many movies my favorite being Mm -hmm. Shaun of the dead but it's david looking in the in the mirror which is also a what do they call him medicine cabinet thank you and he pushes it and it shows that jack is standing right behind him to the side yeah you're not real. That's a very classic horror movie trope. I love it. The scare it. in the medicine cabinet. Yeah, Jack is back and he's even more decomposed than before. Mm-hmm. Every time we see him, the more decomposed he becomes. Yes, it's so good. I said his makeup is bonkers. <laughs> Jack wanted to see him and warn him that the full moon is the next day. And he keeps urging him to kill himself. Yeah, Eddie calls David a putz. I don't be a putz, David. David doesn't believe him, um, and he doesn't believe that he'll turn into a werewolf. And he tells Jack to go away. Yeah, I do like in this scene also, he picks up a Mickey doll and plays with it. Yes. Hi, David! Put that down. Alex hears him talking and comes into the living room, where David tells her what happened. She thinks that he's blaming himself for Jack's death. Yeah, oh, and also when... (laughs) When... Jack was confronting him in this scene. Remember, he called him a walking meatloaf. I will not be threatened by a walking meatloaf. David then ends up telling her the plot to the wolfman. 
Which yeah, I love this. I love that he's bitten by a werewolf, and obviously he's a monster fan because he, <laughs> he's listing off the cast of the Wolfman. He's like Bella Lugosi, Mike's Lon Chaney, and Claude Rains. <laughs> this is my type of fella. Bella Lugosi bites Lon Chaney Jr. and he turns into a werewolf. Um, says that he thinks that werewolves can only be killed by someone that loves them, which I thought was him also being like, mm, just kill me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In that moment. I mean, he knows uh, what might have to happen, maybe. Yeah. But it's funny because they don't talk about the usual ways to kill werewolves in this movie. Like, like it silver seems, bullet. Yeah, no silver bullet talk. It seems any, like, you could kill a werewolf the same way you could kill any man. Really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're now with the doctor who is driving to East Proctor, and he goes to the slaughtered lamb. Yeah, it's nice of this doctor to do his own investigating. Yeah. He goes in there and he brings up the American boys to the bar patrons and they all act like they don't know what he's talking about. He asks about the star on the wall and <laughs> I love that the bar matron Gladys is just like, it's been there for 200 years. Why would we take it down? <laughs> just so <laughs> silly. <laughs> They ask if he's a policeman, and he tells them about David's story. Uh, They're very unfriendly at this point towards him. And one of them says that he needs to go check on his dogs. And um, Because it's starting to rain. Yes, the doctor decides that it's time to go back to London and head out. As he steps out and goes to his car, he notices that the young dart player wants to talk to him. Yeah, he's standing in the graveyard. So the dart player tells him that he shouldn't have let them go. And he warns him about the full moon and starts to tell him more about the werewolf conditions and warnings when the joke teller bar patron shows up and scares him off. And so the doctor leaves. Now we're back with Alex who's leaving for work and David will be all alone for the first time since everything. So we get a little comedic thing where he goes outside to say bye to her and he gets locked out of the apartment. There's a dog that's being walked that passes by and barks at him. Mm -hmm. And then when he goes to break into the apartment, there's a cat that hisses at him. Yeah, they apparently got that cat to hiss by holding up another cat right in front of its face (laughs) off camera. (laughs) So mean. Back inside the apartment, he gets bored and he just kind of puts around the apartment. And at at one point he turns on the TV and he starts watching a program called Naked Truth about Naughty Mina. And the shot goes on for like a full minute. It's yeah. really weird why we're watching this for so long. Don't miss the naked truth about Naughty Nina starting in the News of the World tomorrow. I was really hoping that this would turn into more of a montage, but it's not. It's just these shots that you're sitting with. Yeah. With him, which also makes you bored and I think really builds up the tension. Bad Moon Rising, which I think is the name of the song, is playing over all of this after he ends up watching this TV program. Back at the hospital, Alex is making her rounds and they pan up to the full moon outside the window. Oh no, it's a full moon! We're back with David and... He's just sitting there reading. He is sitting there reading, real casual. He And then he just starts screaming and throws um, the book down and we get the most amazing, painful, and long werewolf transformation scene. Yeah, this is probably the best transformation scene in motion picture history, I'd say. He starts screaming that he's burning up and he rips off his clothes. 
and then you get an array of amazing shots. You get, you know, the the elongating hand, the hair growing, the snout being pushed out. I'll talk some more about the transformation scene after our rundown of the movie, but it really is an incredible scene, and it, it looks so painful and realistic. It and... looks incredibly painful. Can I tell you, the hair, the hair pushing out of his body simultaneously is one of the more painful parts of it for me (laughs) not like his hands not like his bones crack in and things just the hair growing it's the hair i mean i'm not (laughs) saying that it's the only thing everything is painful but the hair all grow i'm like like it just do you know how they shot that well no but i'm sure you'll tell me later or do you want to tell me now well i'll tell you later okay yeah it's a a great scene and it Mm -hmm. ends with the the great howl Now we are with a couple on the street who are going to a dinner party with some friends and decide that they need to walk around the back of the building to scare their friend. Yeah, they're going to surprise them. So here they end up walking onto, like they walk around to this a little bit darker area and Werewolf David ends up attacking them. The Yeah, and it's funny, when they're being attacked, the people that they were going to surprise are in the house and they hear the commotion outside and they blame it on hooligans. They do blame it on hooligans. Those hooligans are in the park again. We also got this scene cut in with the doctor who arrives at the hospital asking if Alex has seen David since his release. He's concerned and wants her to call him. Then we go back to the couple and their friends go out to go see what happened. Um, Cause again, they think it's hooligans and we get this really gruesome shot and like squelching noise of the friend happening upon a severed hand and just kind of walking yeah. on it. Yeah, he steps on it and hear a big squish. Blech. The doctor asks Alex if David keeps going on about the werewolf. I think he ends up calling it fantasies. Um, and he thinks that the villagers are hiding something. He doesn't think that David will literally be a werewolf, but he thinks, oh, I see where this comes in, that theory from before. Yeah. He thinks that David will think he's a werewolf and will harm himself and others. Right. And that theory, it also comes from, I think, uh, knowing the backstory of the Wolfman. Because obviously this movie is really, is inspired by the Wolfman a ton. Uh And the initial script for the Wolfman was actually going to be that, in fact, that he doesn't turn into a Wolfman. Or you never actually see him as a Wolfman, so it's left to your own imagination as to whether he does become a werewolf or not. So that theory that people have that he actually doesn't transform into a werewolf that has some basis in fact that there have been stories that have been written that way. Oh, okay. Well, okay, fine. I take back my initial statements then. Now we're with a homeless encampment um, near London Bridge and we hear... Is it falling down? No, it's not. It's, it's sturdy. We hear some howling in the distance and they are attacked by the werewolf. Yeah, but we don't see the attack. No, no. This was another scene that was cut. There was apparently a very gruesome attack on the homeless people, but it was considered too violent for an R rating. Oh, wow. Next, we get another really great scene with a man down in the subway station who hears the growls. There's someone there. And there's a really long pursuit Um, As well as like a point of view of uh, him looking for the werewolf and the werewolf looking at him. Yeah, it's probably the scariest sequence of the movie. Yeah, because it's a really well lit area. Mm -hmm. And when he falls on those escalators as he's going up, 
And then we get that reveal of the werewolf. Yeah, this is the best shot of the completed werewolf, I think, because it's the most realistic looking. Yeah. The way that they had to shoot the werewolf in his complete form was always strange because there was never a full walking werewolf. They always had to kind of hide it in really tight close-ups. I thought this was great. But this one was done great, yeah. Mm -hmm. We cut to some animals in the zoo, and they're going kind of crazy, and it's early morning. We're with the wolves, and David wakes up naked in their cage. We get a really great scene of him just kind of like trying to sneak out of there and being fully naked in a zoo with it's populated with people. And he yeah. interacts with this little boy where he <laughs> steals his balloons from him. Yeah, he stole his balloon so he could use it to cover his genitalia. All right. <laughs> <laughs> then um, as he's running away with the balloons, he steals a woman's red coat. Yeah, and there's a funny line that the little boy says to his mother. A naked American man stole my balloon. And I like how his mom, she almost repeats it to him and just is like, what are you talking about? She's like, ah, no. (laughs) Alex has been waiting for him. And the doctor, he's reading about people who have died and are half eaten. (laughs) Yep. All around London. As he's reading about this, David gets back to Alex's flat. The doctor wants Alex to bring him to the hospital. But David is just saying that he feels great and he hasn't felt this way in a long time. Yeah, all he knows, I mean, he knows he woke up naked, but he doesn't remember how he got there. He doesn't remember becoming a werewolf, but he knows he feels great and more powerful than he's ever felt before. And he's on a high. Yep. And he's all nuzzling into Alex in that taxi. Um, The taxi driver ends up telling them about the murders. And this completely freaks out David. Yeah. Um, He wants to then turn himself in and jumps out of the car car he finds a policeman and tries to get him to arrest him he confesses to the murders and then like just starts a ruckus and says a bunch of again super inappropriate things yeah and he says some bad things about prince charles oh yeah and (laughs) the um, monarchy in general yeah (laughs) and they actually and remember this movie came out in 1981 which i think was the year of the royal wedding Mm. so in the credits there's a big congratulations to charles and diana mostly because they didn't want them to be a for this scene he tells alex that he loves her and then that she needs to stay away from him and then he runs off because the policeman is not gonna arrest him i love you i but i think i did some terrible things last night things i can't remember the doctor calls scotland yard and they won't accept the connection between the murders and david but they'll help him look for david They're like, our case is closed. We're not doing any of this business, but we'll help you find David. David calls home and tells his family. Well, actually, he gets, I believe, one of his siblings on the phone and tells them to tell his parents and his other siblings that he loves them. Yeah, which is uh, it's a little confusing or not confusing, but why? Like the parents just aren't home. They're out. Like, why didn't the parents come to England and get them? That's what I was wondering also. <laughs> like his best friend has died. Yes. His body went back to England. His parents went to his friend's funeral. His body went back to America. Whatever. Uh, yeah. The Everyone was at the funeral for his friend. And you know, why aren't they coming to get him? I mean, I guess there could have been maybe a scene where they called him on the phone saying, do you want us to come get you? And he said, no, and we didn't see it. But <laughs> yeah, he's sad here and he knows what he has to do and he 
tells his sister that he loves her and to tell the parents and he then tries to harm himself in the phone booth and as he's doing it he looks up and he sees jack outside of a porn theater yeah, um, and I always thought he looked really scary here. It's a long shot, and he is even more decomposed yes. in sort of a skeletal-looking way. He's gray, everything. He's just gross-looking. He yeah. looks like he smells. I wish we got a close-up of that makeup. Because mm, that makeup changes between that scene and being inside of the theater. Yeah, because once we're in the theater and we meet him, it's a puppet because he's basically a skeleton. Mm-hmm. But... In the faraway shot, you can get away with having a makeup and believing he's a skeleton because you're so far away. He motions for David to follow him in there. And yeah, we do get this really amazing Jack skeletal corpse. You look awful. They talk about what's happening and David isn't 100% sure that he did the murders. Jack then goes to introduce him to the people that he ha- he killed that evening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting that that David is being haunted by everyone he kills until he kills himself. Yes. Uh, But yeah, that Jack puppet, it's a little comical, but it still is really great at the same time. Oh, I think it's great. I think it's super great. I don't think it's as scary. Yeah, there is a little bit of more um, comedy to it. And it's also because of how sarcastic Jack is also. He's not foreboding. He's just telling him everything outright. He's not sugarcoating anything. Well, John Landis, while directing Griffin Dunn throughout the whole movie, he said, even though you're a rotting corpse, I want you to always sound like you're having the best time of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Here he has another transformation in the theater and he ends up attacking the theater goers. As he's sitting and transforming, there's someone who comes up to him and he tells him to go away. And the guy just kind of stares at him in disbelief. Yeah. Then we see the fingernails grow. Yes. Great shot. The police arrive. They get called uh, to the theater and they find him uh, feeding inside of the theater and decide to lock him in. Yeah, there's a great shot of the policeman shines a light on the werewolf as he's feeding and he looks into the camera and he looks really neat there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they run out and lock it up and they say there's a bad dog in the theater. He breaks out and he starts attacking people and causes like a huge car wreck out on the street. Yeah, this was shot at Piccadilly Circus, mm-hmm. which is basically like a, like a Times Square area, you know. He jumps out of the theater he just latches on to the neck of like the chief commission, the police commissioner and cuts his head off and it goes flying onto the hood of a car. And yeah, cars are crashing everywhere. People are dying everywhere. <laughs> it's crazy. Back at the hospital, they hear of the mad dog that's causing a disturbance. David. We're back with David, werewolf David, and he's cornered by the police and some citizens. Since the doctor and Alex heard about it, they have raced over to Piccadilly Square to find him and hopefully help him. The police have assembled a firing squad after they've um, cornered him and... Alex makes her way through. Yes, Alex makes her way through towards him and sees that he's a wolf. She tells him that she loves him. I love you, David. There's a close-up of him where he kind of gets a look on his face like like he's can remember her somewhat. Like like the frown sort of loosens a little bit. Uh-huh. And then he's about to lunge at her. Yes. And he gets fired on mm-hmm. by the police. 
she sees that he was 100% correct. She cries and she's stunned and we see his body laying there naked, shot up. Yeah, his human body. He is now back to David. And then we cut to credits and a real loud booming rendition of Blue Moon. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 odd. It's <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere. Startling the ending. because the ending is so sad, and then it's just it's great comedic timing of it, just like yeah. going to these credits. You see, he was a werewolf. He got killed. She loves him, which I think it's too soon for her to love him, but whatever. And she just took him home from the hospital. She <laughs> and probably in her mind, she's been in love with him since the day she met him. <laughs> but yeah, so that's an American werewolf in London. Yeah, I love the picture. I do always say I do find it anticlimactic. I feel like the ending could go on longer. And I think part of it is because they didn't want to show the werewolf so much they couldn't do the shots that they wanted to mm. so much. But yeah, I always find it to be a bit anticlimactic that there, there should have been more build up. It just okay. kind of comes and it's over. Okay. But I do love the movie though. I think it's a terrific picture. I think it's great. I love it so much. I very much enjoy it. Yeah. I saw it at the Academy Theater, uh, you know, where they, not where they do the Oscars, but where the headquarters are for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And they were doing a monster month in October or something. And it was a double feature of an American werewolf in London with, I don't remember. It could have been the Wolfman. It was a, it was a universal monster movie it was with. And that was a great experience as well. Seeing that in the theater and, you know, hearing the howls and the sound so great. I just loved it. And then a few years ago at Universal Studios, they did The Maze at Hollywood Horror Nights. Which was so good. And yeah. And then they reused some of it this past year. Did they? Yeah, they used some of it. um, Oh, yeah, it was in that like little walkthrough thing. Yeah, which is, what was it? It was called Halloween, probably. Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) But yeah, it was really good. They they recreated all the scenes from the movie. All Hallows Eve with a Z, I believe. (laughs) That's how they get around. They get copyright stuff. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some fun facts, trivia, making of's, and all that stuff for an American Werewolf of London. Let us. An American Werewolf in London, 1981, from Universal Pictures. Do you know who wrote this movie? John Landis. That's right. John Landis wrote this script back in 1969. Uh, The movie didn't come out until 1981. Mm -hmm. So he wrote this in 1969 while working on Kelly's Heroes as a production assistant. He came up with this idea while on that shoot in Yugoslavia because he was driving down a long road, I imagine similar to the opening scene of An American World for London, Mm -hmm. and their car was stopped. There are a bunch of gypsies, and the gypsies were having a funeral, Uh and they were burying someone in the ground feet first. They were burying someone? You said burying. Burying. Burring. <laughs> Whatever <Yeah>. whore island. <laughs> <laughs> the gypsies were burring. Burying. Were burying. <laughs> well, don't you bury someone? 
or bury someone. Burying. All right. The gypsies were burying someone feet first <laughs> into the ground, and they had uh, like a shroud and garlic over like them. Like standing? Yeah. Okay. It was like a, I guess yeah. more than six feet down, but yeah, yeah they're like standing in their grave. And John Landis asked the driver why they bury them like that and put the garlic on them. And he said, it's to make sure that they didn't get up and leave. <laughs> John Landis thought to himself, well, what if they did get up and leave? Mm-hmm. And that's how it all started for him. Now, John Landis, he was also a big monster fan and loved all those movies like The Wolfman and all that. So he had all that as reference to throw in there. Nice. So he wrote the script and, you know, he blended horror and comedy, which are his two strengths and did a great job writing this script. It was a nine week shooting schedule. And as I told you, the opening was done in the Black Mountains of Wales. The village that they go to, I think think of the movie, it's called... East Proctor. Proctor. East Proctor. Uh, But it was a real village called Crickadarn. Crickadarn. Why didn't he stick with Crickadarn? (laughs) I don't know. Now, the thing was that there was no pub in the whole village, and they needed a slaughtered lamb. Uh So they took a real cottage and built their own pub. And they also brought in the uh, tombstones, like the statue next to that, to give it its gothic appearance. Gotcha. I just want to talk a little bit about locations. Uh, The hospital, that was a disused maternity hospital. So it was a real hospital. And I think today it is open as a a home for homeless people. Also, another interesting place that they filmed was Windsor Castle, which I believe was where the uh, couple was murdered when David first turned into the werewolf. Oh, uh uh-huh. And the interesting thing about that is they were filming there the week that... Charles and Diana's engagement was announced, and Windsor Castle was where they had like their second home, basically. Uh huh, uh huh. As I said, John Landis wrote the script, he also directed it. Mm-hmm. So he wrote this in 1969, but he had to wait so long to make it because no one would make this movie because it's going to have a little bit of a budget, and horror comedies aren't exactly what people are clamoring for to make money but by this time he had previously made blues brothers and animal house Mm. so he was prominent enough where he could get this made unfortunately there were some people when they saw that the new movie from the director of blues brothers and animal house they went there thinking it was going to be a straight comedy and when those nazi werewolves came out (laughs) killing everybody they ran out of the theater Um, John Landis, uh, you know, he does have a cameo in the movie. Oh. Did you see him? No. It's a very quick shot. Uh -uh. But in the Piccadilly Circus scene, there is a car that crashes into someone, and that person goes crashing into a window. He is the person that goes crashing into the window. (laughs) He's wearing like a bandana and kind of looks like a hippie. Ah. Want to do a little cast rundown? We have David Naughton playing David. So he was brought in to audition for the role because John Landis saw him in uh, some commercials and really liked him in that. He was in many Dr. Pepper commercials. I drink Dr. Pepper, don't you see? Because it's the perfect taste for me. He has a Dr. Pepper face. Yeah, he is. He was the <laughs> well, he, he really was the face of Dr. Pepper for a time. He would, had a big contract with Dr. Pepper. But... He was let go by Dr. Pepper after this movie because of all of his nude scenes. I was about to say, I'm like, they probably didn't like his penis in the zoo. Yeah. 
And then, so lame. Us being a Seinfeld fan, he was a guest star on Seinfeld one time. Do you remember? Uh, no. He was in an episode where Elaine was dating. <laughs> he was dating this guy who was um, he was a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> Elaine asked Jerry to hold his drink for her, and he took the one. And oh. it's the one where George gets the cashmere sweater for Elaine, yeah, and then yeah. <laughs> they're all scared because it's Christmas and he's wrecking everything, and they are hiding under a desk. And George gives him the cashmere sweater, and he's like, "What's this dot?" <laughs> um, he's the doctor. He's not the 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 guy she's dating, or is he the guy she's dating? He is the guy she's dating. Gotcha. Griffin Dunn. He plays Jack. The other thing I know him from mostly is... My girl. My girl. <laughs> Mr. Mixler. <laughs> I'm so sorry about Thomas J. Beta okay. Saltedfuss had a huge crush on him. Yeah, she truly did. <laughs> Jenny Agutter plays Nurse Alice Price, and she was also in Logan's Run and Child's Play 2. Oh. John Woodvine plays Dr. Hirsch. He was in a bunch of British things because he's very British. <laughs> As I told you, Frank Oz is in this. Uh, the funny thing, though, did you see in the credits, Kermit and Miss Piggy have credits as themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Rick Baker is also in this movie, apparently. I've heard conflicting things on this, but I did read that he plays the Nazi werewolf that slashes David's throat. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it was him. I did read that it was a stuntman also, so I'm not sure, but let's say it was him. <laughs> well, maybe Rick Baker listens to our podcast and he can let us know. Yeah, Rick Baker, monster maker, if you know. And then there's a little bit of conflicting thoughts about how they got that wolf howl. Someone said it's a mixture of a real wolf and an elephant. And then someone else said it's that and they play it backwards. But then John Landis said there's like seven different animals that are used to create that. So I don't know. But they did a great howl and I mm -hmm. love it. It's very unique. And then I, I want to talk a bit about Rick Baker, who is the real uh, shining star of this movie, I think. I mean, every, everyone did a great job, but he's the one that really uh, did some amazing things. So Rick Baker and John Landis met on the movie Schlock. This, Schlock? Yeah, this is a movie from the early 70s. This was a movie where that John Landis had directed, and he played the title character Schlock, which was this ape man. And it was a really neat makeup that looked like Planet of the Apes, kind of. And that was back in the early 70s. At that time, John Landis gave Rick Baker the script for An American Werewolf in London, because remember, he wrote it in 1969. So he gave it to him to come up with some ideas on how to do these werewolf techniques for this movie. Mm -hmm. Because at that time in the script, John Landis already had it in mind how he wanted to shoot the transformation scene. Mm -hmm. So he wanted Rick Baker to take a look at this and come up with some ideas. Well, years and years went by. It's around 1980 now. And Rick Baker is offered the job to do the makeup for the movie, The Howling. So Rick Baker is working on The Howling, and then John Landis called, and he said we could do an American World for London. He had promised John Landis that he would do this movie, you know, years ago, so he had to leave The Howling and pass it off to Rob Bottin, who did incredible things based off of Rick Baker's designs. Unfortunately, John Landis was a bit upset because it was a little bit too similar to the designs of An American Wolf in London, which it was. A lot of people think it's better makeup than An American Wolf in London. Oh, wow. And I have a hard time choosing which 
transformation scene I prefer because the the howling transformation scene is incredible. I've never seen it. it. It's good. It's not as good of a movie as an American Wolf in London, but the transformation scene is really weird and strange, but different. Uh, and there's stuff in that that was also used for thriller. For instance, in The Howling, they have those bladders that kind of go in and out, which they also did in Thriller. Oh, uh-huh. That was an idea that Dick Smith had for Rick Baker, but he didn't take that with him to an American Werewolf in London because he had to do something different from what The Howling was. Yeah. So the biggest thing was Rick Baker wanted to do a two-legged werewolf like the Wolfman. That's how he always thought of werewolves. Mm-hmm. But John Landis would not budge. He wanted a four-legged demon from hell werewolf. Okay. Uh, he thought that an audience wouldn't buy a two-legged werewolf in this day and age. <laughs> <laughs> so the the problem, though, is how do you make a four-legged werewolf walk? And they couldn't really figure it out. So what they did was Rick Baker remembered as a kid, they used to have wheelbarrow races. And that's where you would have a race where you would hold someone's legs and they would use their hands to walk. And that's how they got the werewolf to walk. Anytime we see him walk, the front legs are are a stuntman's two arms and he's on a wooden plank and he's being pushed with the legs. So so that you never see the full werewolf because if he did, you'd see human legs sticking out of his butt, basically. (laughs) Gotcha. The look of the werewolf was inspired by Rick Baker's dog. Lots of the time when Rick Baker would be sculpting things, he would look in a mirror and, you know, make different faces and sculpt. And his dog's always is around, too. And he said, well, you know, he has four legs. He's hairy. He could look a little terrifying. I might as well make him look like that. So uh, the werewolf in An American Wolf of London is really Rick's dog named Bosco. Oh, Bosco. <laughs> Rick Baker, he sculpted the face of the werewolf to have this extreme fierceness to it because John Landis told him, you're not going to see him on screen for very long. So he put this expression on so you could quickly read it from far away. For sure. Unfortunately for Rick Baker, he felt the werewolf was on screen a little bit longer than he would have wanted. He would have rather had more subtleties in it, I guess. But it looks great. Rick Baker's crew for the movie. Like Rick Baker was about 30 at this time. And the crew were all like 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And all of them were his fans. They were people that sent him fan mail. And he brought them over to England and they did the work. David Naughton, who plays David in the movie, uh, he was brought in 10 months before shooting so they could take molds of his body and create mm-hmm. the makeup. And that was something that Rick Baker told John Landis he had to have that they had to come up with their cast 10 months earlier so he could have time to create these makeups. So Mm -hmm. both David Naughton and Griffin Dunn came in. Uh, Griffin Dunn, he had a hard time with the makeup. I think this was like his first makeup role, big makeup role. And he wasn't happy looking at himself in the mirror as a decomposed version of, of himself. He thought it was very depressing and it was very eerie to him that he would see what he would look like if he died. (laughs) And he was also worried that no one would pay attention to his performance. They would only look at his makeup. But he ended up uh, doing a great job, mm-hmm. and everyone seemed to love his performance. Mm-hmm. His makeup took five hours to apply each day, oh, wow. which sounds horrendous. Yes, it does. <laughs> uh, but then, as I told you, the last time we see Griffin Dunn as Jack uh, in his skeletal stage, it's a puppet. It's mm-hmm. a life-size puppet, mm-hmm. and the the skeleton was sculpted over a life cast of Griffin Dunn. 
And then there were special effects guys that were operating the puppet. But Griffin Dunn himself operated the jaw since he was doing the line. So Mm. he would know what he was going to be saying. Mm -hmm. And he did a great job operating that jaw. Mm -hmm. And I just want to talk a little bit about that great transformation scene, the greatest scene from uh, the movie. So Landis wanted to make the transformation scene with these notes that had to be in harsh lighting, had to look painful, realistic, and no cutaways. The whole transformation was shot over the period of six days, yet not that much footage was shot because it was just so much time of setting up and tearing down, setting up. and So it took a long time. And then you were saying that the hair growing was the most painful thing to you. The way that they shot that was they had hairs that were implanted into, you know, a piece of whatever, uh, silicone silicone or something, but they uh, shot it in reverse. They just pulled back the hair into it and then they reversed it and then it looks like it grows. And then the best effect, the neatest effect is what Rick Baker called the changeo head, which is the head that has the elongating snout. Mm -hmm. And that was a puppet that he built uh, with a mechanism that would stretch out the snout, which I wish it was shot more at a profile to see it have even a more extreme effect. But it still is great the way that it's there. And Rick Baker was, he was a bit upset when John Landis shot it because he had worked for months on this head. And John Landis, they brought it on the set and he said action. They shot it for about 10 to 15 seconds. And he said, that's it. That's a wrap. (laughs) And he was pissed because he worked months on it and it's only there for 10 seconds. But when he saw people applauding in the theater when that happened, he uh, changed his mind and he was just right. And the same type of head with the elongating snout was also done in The Howling. That one actually looked a little bit more extreme, the protrusion of it. But the overall transformation is, I think, better in An American Wolf in London, just because of how unique it is with the choice of music, the harsh lighting, the mm-hmm. way it's shot. Um, yeah, they aren't hiding anything in that in that at all. Yeah, and it's funny because Rick Baker, he wanted to shoot it all in one shot, which would have been too hard to do. Yeah. But... Everything is done in cuts, but your mind just doesn't really notice it. Like when it goes from one cut to another, like so much has happened in that cut that you don't see, but you don't really think about it. You just see the transformations happening. Mm -hmm. I told you that they shot at Piccadilly Circus, which was a very popular spot that was very hard to film at. Like they wouldn't let a lot of movies film there, but they were able to get it for two nights between the hours of 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. And they had to film a lot of action in there. So they had three cameras that were high above covering everything and four cameras on the ground. The budget for this movie was $10 million. Oh, wow. And it went on to make over $30 million. Very nice. It opened August 21st, 1981. And I was watching some trailers, and there's actually a TV spot, which I thought was kind of funny, because it was narrated by Wolfman Jack. Take it from Wolfman Jack. The critics and I agree. This is the most outrageous horror film that you'll ever see, because David is having the most frightening nightmares of his life. I think I did some terrible things last night, things I can't remember. He's that old radio DJ. Uh, He was in American Graffiti. Mm Mm-hmm. The final thing I want to say about An American Werewolf in London is that it went on to win the Oscar for Best Makeup, which was the first movie to ever win the Best Makeup Academy Award. The first movie, period? 
well, or the, first horror movie. The first movie, because this was the first time they had that category. Oh, wow. Uh, there were times where movies that had big makeup jobs won special Academy <laughs> Awards. Like, I think William Tuttle won for The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, and I think John Chambers won a special achievement award for Planet of the Apes. But 1982, I guess, would have been the first time they ever had a makeup category. Wow. And the first winner of that category was An American Werewolf in London. It was presented to Rick Baker by Vincent Price and Kim Hunter. Mm -hmm. Kim Hunter was Zira in Planet of the Apes. Vincent, will you reveal the winner? No, please, you do it. Uh, Openings always make me shaky. (laughs) (laughs) The winner is Rick Baker for An American Werewolf in London. Rick Baker was very honored to be its first recipient. He thanked Dick Smith in his speech. Mm -hmm. Rick Baker went on to, I think, win seven Academy Awards. Oh, wow. He is retired from the film industry, but he still does a ton of things on his own. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you never know. uh, It could be something he really wants to do. So maybe he will come back and win an eighth Academy Award. We'll see. But that's uh, the story of an American werewolf in London. Very nice. I really enjoy it. So we uh, hope you enjoyed listening all about an American werewolf in London. And Inthea, why don't you tell the good folks where they can find us? We can be found at Pods and Monsters Podcast on Instagram, at podsandmonsters.com on the internets, then at Pods and Monsters on Facebook and Twitter. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please feel free to rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps us get out there and get seen. Also, if you have any suggestions or requests for movies going forward, you can drop us a line at podsandmonsters at gmail.com or slide into the DMs on all the socials. Also, we have our movie list posted up there. And I guess the most important thing that we haven't talked about is we are nominated for a Rondo Award for what's the category? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they don't have a podcast category per se. So we are nominated for Best Multimedia Website. So that includes, you know, websites and podcasts, anything like that. So please go to RondoAward.com and vote for us and vote for all your favorite things. Yep. He has instructions there on how to vote, which I believe involves sending an email of some sort. Yeah. Basically, you email the guy with anything you want to vote for. You don't have to vote for all categories. You just vote for whatever you want. Yeah. So we're up in there. And uh, that's all we got. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well. For Pods and Monsters, I'm Robert. I'm Anthea. And beware the moon. Stay on the roads. Off the moors. Is that the line? Something to that effect. Howoo! <laughs> Bye-bye. Shall we go, Jack? Apparently so.